Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, I agree with Mike. It's uh, great to be inside and being able to hear uh, one another's uh, voices as we sing together. Um, it's also a great privilege, as, as we do each week, turning to God's Word together, uh, trusting that His Spirit will come and uh, take the words, um, my words or Mike's words each week, um, and bring the message that God wants each one of us to hear, and by His Spirit will um, not only bring it to our ears, but to our hearts as well, and I hope that will be the case um, this morning as well as we turn to God's Word. And this morning, we're going to dip into the book of song, uh, Psalms, the, the song book of the Bible, as we begin a, a brief little series that I'm calling uh, Songs for Life. And over the next handful of weeks, we're going to pick out a number of the uh, different psalms, and we're going to use them, we're going to look at uh, them in a way that hopefully will show their usefulness and practicality and application uh, to us in the living out of our daily lives. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the grace of confession, the grace of confession. And so if you have uh, a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, you'll certainly um, find the, uh, the text in your worship guide as well. You know, confession is a, a spiritual practice that has uh, shaped the lives of Christians and uh, the life of the church through, through all of history, all the way back through uh, into biblical times. Uh, but I, I do fear that it is a practice that has increasingly become uh, somewhat uh, relegated and neglected today. And in fact, many churches have, have jettisoned what was once an almost universal practice of the corporate expression of confession and worship. And I fear that that has contributed to the increasing neglect of the practice experienced in the lives of many Christians today. But confession is something that is absolutely vital uh, to a healthy uh, spiritual life, both corporately and individually. And so I believe it's worth our time looking at this morning, and it's certainly worth our time recovering it as a practice in our lives. You know, confession is also something that our culture has uh, quite a strange relationship with, I, I think. Um, we seem as a culture, and I mean here the U.S. Rather than the, rather than the church, we seem to have a strange relationship to confession, I think. And that is, we seem to believe two quite incompatible things about it. Because on the one hand, we say things like, Ah, confession is good for the soul, right? And every day uh, on our, in our newspapers and on our TV screens, they're full of celebrities and politicians and influencers and even companies admitting blame for things that, that they or people associated with them have done. I mean, we often, how many times have we listened to headlines about how some politician in this country is admitting responsibility? Yeah, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. It happens all the time, it seems. It happens continually. People saying, I shouldn't have done that. I recognize the pain this has caused. I take full responsibility, yada, yada. But on the other hand, we practice confession in a way designed to minimize the damage to our reputation. So what happens is we say things in order to make it sound like an aberration, like a, a completely unusual thing to happen. Oh, I'm so sorry, it was totally out of character. 
or I don't know what came over me, or it was a momentary lapse in judgment, or mistakes were made. All of those are ways of trying to deflect blame from the individual who's supposed to be confessing their sin. Again, over the past year or so, how many times have we seen, you know, a politician, you know, caught, you know, not following their own mandates regarding social gatherings or, or wearing a mask during a public event or something? And they, and they explain it and they do the kind of, well, obviously I'm terribly sorry, but this is totally out of character. It only happened this once. I never normally do that. In other words, we confess, but we instantly try to make it sound like it's not bad. And it's not just politicians, right? Everyone does that. We emphasize things like, oh, it was a very long time ago. Oh, I was very young and and foolish. If I had my time again, we say I'd do things differently. In other words, the me today would never do such a stupid thing. But the me back then, well, of course, was a completely different person and did it. And so in a way, even as we're confessing, we're basically saying, yeah, I'm not really to blame. The old me, that was a different person, is to blame. An extreme example is when we confess the sins of other people. Have have you noticed this is more and more a thing, uh, in in my lifetime anyway, we, we often confess the sins of other people, partly to stress that we ourselves would not have done them. So I'm sorry for what my ancestor, or my colleagues, or my company, or my fellow American, or whatever, did to you, or your ancestors, or whatever. It's like an extreme version of apologizing for things that you not only didn't do, but you're also kind of saying it in a way to to say, I'm better than that. I wouldn't have done that, but they did, and I'm sorry. And it goes without saying that all of those confessions of course, are not directed towards God. They're directed just to other people. Do you see what I mean? You see, confession biblically is theological. It is a way to assume responsibility for failures and then to go to God for forgiveness. But we've turned it from being theological into being therapeutic, a way of... deflecting responsibility for failures and going to people for understanding rather than to God for forgiveness. And as I say, even in the church, where confession used to be, and in some churches, of course, still is, a weekly part of the liturgy, confession has become privatized and individualized. It's something that you you only really do uh, with one other person, maybe in an extreme case or whatever, you know? You know, it's not a, whatever it is, it's not a regular practice. We need to recover in our lives the grace of confession. And so let's read Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God. Biblical confession is a collision of two things. Knowing the radical depths of your sin and knowing the radical depth of God's mercy. Right? Where those two meet, when those two meet, biblical confession happens. And both of them spill out of this psalm in abundance. Right? If you you don't know the radical depths of your sin, then either you won't confess it at all, you'll sweep it under the carpet and hope nobody notices, or you'll confess it in a way that minimizes it, as we've seen in a lot, with a lot of people, uh, that a lot of people do that today. And probably all of us do to some degree. We're shaped in that sense by our culture. So if you don't know the, the radical depths of your sin, you'll, you either won't confess it, or you'll just make it seem very small. But on the other hand, if you don't know the radical depth of God's mercy, then you won't confess your sins either. We only practice biblical confession when we know that we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need from the one who sits on the throne of grace. And if we're not sure that he is going to be merciful to us, we won't tell him because we'll be terrified that he might smite us or something. And you can see that, you know, that dynamic Uh, play out all the time on social media. I don't know what social media you're on, if any, but you will, I'm sure, have noticed this to some degree, whatever platform you're on. Because people don't expect to find mercy and grace when they fail, when they make a mistake, and and, and by the way, they're probably right because human beings are, are, are not good at showing mercy and grace. What they do is they conceal their faults and they highlight other people's faults. 
Rather than coming clean and saying, this is what I did and it was awful and there's no excuse for it, we tend to minimize it because we're not sure that we'll find mercy and grace when we say it. You see, grace engenders confession and forgiveness. But mercilessness prompts concealment, cover-ups, and accusation. And much of the power of this psalm comes from the fact that David is very aware of the depths of his sin because it has been exposed, right? I mean, the cat was totally out of the bag. Uh, Nathan the prophet had come and confronted him. And you see that in the opening line, which, by the way, just as an aside, you know that in the Psalms, although the heading, Psalm 51, is not in the inspired text of Scripture, the introductory phrase at the top of part um, is part of what God inspired in his word. So it begins, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That's part of what God's inspired, he inspired the prophet to write down. And it begins, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone in to Bathsheba. And that's an incredibly, that's quite a graphic way of, of saying it. It's a good turn of phrase they have in Hebrew to say, after he had gone into Bathsheba, which is literally what he'd done. You see, David's palace was situated on the top of the hill that overlooked the city of Jerusalem. And so when David went for a walk on the roof of his palace and looked down upon the city, as he might have you know, occasion to do from time to time, he would obviously be able to look and see a, you know, a woman having a bath, uh, you know, bathing on the roof of her house because he's right on the top of the hill looking down. And he does. And he sees a woman having a bath. He fancies her. He says, I want her. He then commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant. And then he arranges for her husband to be killed. I mean, this is arguably the most egregious, heinous sin in the whole Bible. Because this is Israel's king, the man after God's own heart. And he has just done one of the worst things you can do. Adultery and murder at the same time. I mean, you get to the end, of David's, the end of David's life and the text says something like David was a man who followed God with all of his heart. And your initial reaction is like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He killed a man and he slept with his wife. I mean, what on earth is the writer saying? And of course, this is the, the strange dynamic that David, this incredibly, in some ways, very godly man who loves the Lord with all his heart and, 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 and writes things like this, is also responsible for one of the blackest, worst, deepest sins in the Bible. But the sheer flagrancy of the sin actually helps David when it comes to confessing it because there's no point in, in covering it up. There's nowhere to hide and there's no one to blame. You can't go, well, she shouldn't have been bathing there, should she? That, that's not, you can't do that with this kind of sin. And so his confession is actually a model for us, and it has served as a model for the church throughout history, really, especially in a world that sees sin in therapeutic rather than theological terms. David recognizes what he has done, verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I know what I've done. I, I recognize it. I see it. I can, I, I can see its awfulness. He recognizes whom he has offended. Verse 4, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's an extraordinary claim. I've killed a man. I've slept with a woman who was not married to me and made her pregnant, and yet ultimately against you, you only have I sinned. That's an amazing way of thinking about it, isn't it? The idea that the worst thing you can do, I have racially abused that person. I have hit that person. I've even killed that person, and yet God ultimately, the sin is against you who made that person in your image, even more than it is against them. And David also recognizes how characteristic his sin is. He's not even trying to say, well, I did, of course, but but it was a one-off. It was an aberration. It's not really who I am. That's why he says in verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, I've been sinful my whole life. I've always been like this. It's not even like this is a one-off. It's not that that's not in character. It's totally in character. That's why it's so awful. It reflects who I am. You see, it's like the opposite of, I don't, I don't know what came over me. Sin came over me. And it always does. And Lord, therefore, I'm going to admit wholly and unreservedly that this is my fault and I'm not going to try and blame someone else for it. He knows all too well how bad his sin is. But knowing the depths of your sin is not enough. Because if that's all you know, then it will lead you to despair Or to try and hide from God. Because if you think, I know how bad my sin is, and I don't think God's going to be merciful to me, you might just run and hide like Adam and and Eve did. Or you might just say, I don't even like God. That's what Martin Luther said before he encountered the grace of God. He said, no, I I was terrified of God because I thought he was just a big ogre who was going to smite me. So even though I I knew my sin, I didn't go to God for confession. Or or when I did, I didn't really want to because, because I wasn't sure I'd find grace. Confession only happens when you know both your sin and the radical depths of God's mercy. And David does. In fact, that that shines through in this psalm even more than the awareness of his sin does. Right? At the mercy of God is where this whole whole psalm starts. Verse verse 1. I mean, it doesn't start with David's badness. It starts with God's goodness. Have mercy. Second word in English. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. What a start. What kind of vision of God and His grace brings people to a place of confession? That kind of vision does. And similarly, David ends with a statement of, of incredible confidence of God's forgiveness and favor towards him, considering what he's done. Verses 14 to 17, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, he's always already praying like somebody who knows that God's going to forgive him. And he's looking forward to worshiping him afterwards. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. 
You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you won't despise. You see, David knows. He knows the mercy of God. So he knows that when he goes to God with his sin, God's going to show him mercy. That's really what's baffling about the, the, the life and story of David in the Bible. Because you want to say, how on earth can David be described as following the Lord with his whole heart when he committed adultery and murdered a guy? And the response is really kind of like, yeah, I know, it's crazy. But that's the mercy of God. I mean, over and over again in the, in the, in the books of 1 and 2 Kings, after David's died, the writer holds up David as an example of righteousness. In spite of this, 2 Kings 22, verse 2, for instance, there are many others. Josiah always obeyed the Lord as his father David had done. Why is the writer saying that? Does he not know what happened? No, the writer knows. And the writer knows that David repented of his sin and he confessed his sin. And as a result, it was covered by the abundant mercy of God. And then at the heart of the psalm, so he begins the psalm with mercy. He ends the psalm with mercy. And then in the middle, we have this really beautiful flurry of metaphors in, in which David both appeals for mercy and elaborates on how that works in the life of the believer. So there are a bunch of, of different um, metaphors he, he uses. He, he uses the picture of cleansing. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Verse 7. He uses the picture of washing. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Also in verse 7. Growing up in the north and having spent uh, much of my early life in the grip of Canadian winters, I get this picture. You know, those times where, where everything, you know, the, it's dirty, the road, the driveway, the sidewalks, there's all, it's just all dirty. You, you know, there's that kind of slushy, yellowy, mess that is just awful and then you wake up the next morning after a fresh snow and it's just like it's totally whitewashed by this fresh layer of snow and the filth and the grime and the mess can no longer be seen at all in fact the fresh layer of snow makes it impossible to, to even tell that the mess was there and David's using that as a picture of the mercy of God covering your sin he says, you do it. You do these things, and they're a mess. They're grim, and they're dirty, and they're awful, and they're very visible, and everybody knows about them. And then God, once again, through the night, as it were, his mercy covers everything and makes it whiter than snow. And he uses the metaphor of rejoicing. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verses 8 and, and, and 12. He uses the metaphor of blotting. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my transgressions. This is another picture that came home really powerfully to me just this week with an incident that happened in our home. Um, one day, unfortunately, one of our dogs left an unwelcome deposit in the house. Uh, which is something that no pet owner likes to discover, but 
you know, it does sometimes happen. And, and while not the most pleasing thing to discover, it usually is not that big of a deal. Except, we also just so happen to have one of those robotic vacuums that vacuums the house while you're gone for the day. And as you might have guessed it, the schedule between the work of the dog and the work of the vacuum did not work in our favor with the vacuum deciding to share the gift throughout the whole room. And needless to say, what followed was, apart from choice words and a realization, again, of what an amazing wife I have, um, was the most unpleasant cleaning chore. And it's like, oh no, oh, it's on the carpet. I'm going to kill this dog. And you pour on the cleaning stuff and all the disinfecting products. And then, and then you just try to you know, blot it. You get paper towels and you know, rags and, and you just you know, absorb all the moisture and filth up. And you just dab, dab, dab. You blot. And eventually you look down with satisfaction and you've blotted it. You've absorbed it all. You've taken it away. And David's saying, that's what God does with your sin. It's what he's done with my sin, David is saying. He has blotted it and removed it. He's absorbed it, if you like, into something else, namely himself, and has removed it from me completely. And he uses the metaphor of recreation, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He uses the metaphor of indwelling. Don't cast me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 11. It's a whole bunch of different pictures that David's using to try and illustrate how amazing the mercy of God is. When you confess your sin, God forgives you. So biblical confession is a collision between two things. Knowing the radical depths of your sin and knowing the radical depths of God's mercy. And honestly, although it sounds weird, it's one of my favorite parts of our, our worship service. It really is. I, I love coming to the Lord with my sin. Confessing it clearly. And receiving his mercy all over again. I find this one of the most beautiful ways of encountering the goodness of God is to come to God with confession of sin and experiencing, once again, the joy of him washing it all away. And that's why we call it renewal in our service. And so let me just finish, if I may, uh, by just making five quick practical points about how we practice confession in our daily lives. I, I said I want this to be really practical for us, so I, I, I want to just make five practical points of how to confess sin in a way that's, that's spiritually fruitful in our lives. And, the, and these are all connected to the psalm, but some are, uh, of them are more drawn from it than others, as you'll see. Number one, use words. Um, I'd really encourage this. David does. Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our sins as, as we forgive. For reasons I don't fully understand, a lot of us um, were taught when we were little, if we grew up in, in Christian homes or in, in the church, we were taught, you know, bow your head, close your eyes, and you don't say anything out loud. I, I really never understood why, because it makes it, makes it so less engaging, and your brain is, 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 is far less connected with uh, with what you're doing. Many of us have been taught to pray silently in our heads, but I don't think that's a very good tactic most of the time. 
I mean, obviously, if you're in a public place, you don't want to start speaking out loud. It might not be appropriate. I get that. You certainly don't want to be confessing to murdering someone on the bus, although there might be other issues at that point. But I think that, 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 that using words, what it does is it avoids, if you like, brain waffle, right? Otherwise, my brain just waffles all the time. But if I speak and I say, Lord, I am sorry. I did this. That was motivated by that. That was sinful. It was wrong. Please forgive me. You use words, and you find that your brain, it connects. It doesn't just waffle. Ah, mistakes were made. So use words. Secondly, be specific. The more specific our confession, the more specific the forgiveness we experience. Well, listen, it, it, I'm not saying that God forgives us more because we've said certain things in a certain way, but it's that the experience of forgiveness that I have is related to the experience of specificity, of specificness in confessing sin. David does here. David says, Lord, deliver me from blood guiltiness. In other words, I am guilty of this man's blood because I arranged for him to be killed, and he was. And because I did, I am guilty of blood. And I am guilty of adultery. I am guilty of these terrible sins. And I'm asking you to forgive me for this specific thing. And I think that's a good practice, to be specific in confession. It's one of the reasons why in our worship service we have both a corporate and a private time of confession. And while our our corporate prayer joins us together in a general prayer of confession, the private moments of confession we have allows us for specificity in our personal confession. Number three, make confession a regular practice. Don't, don't, don't save up all of your sins so you can deal with them all at, you know, like one batch lot. You know, well, yeah, I'm going to confess anyway, so I might as well, you know, wait for Sunday morning and then we can, you know, just take care of them all in one go. If Sunday morning is the only time during the week that you spend uh, in any time of confession, that should be of concern. I'd say keep short accounts, confess regularly. A friend of mine who spent some time in the military, he said that he always remembered the commanding officer of his squadron would always say when they were out on, on doing exercises, they, they'd say, he, he'd say, drink freely, pee freely. Drink freely, pee freely. That was his advice. You need to keep drinking water because you'll become dehydrated if you don't. You need to keep drinking and keep being that. Otherwise, you will get, if you don't continue to drink, to flush out the poisons out of your system. And if, if you don't, it'll store up and you'll be less fruitful. And I think you can, you can map that onto confession and say, yeah, okay, I, w- I want to keep confessing freely. I need to keep drinking the mercy of God and fleshing the poison out of my system because otherwise guilt begins to build up and it begins to make, make me less fruitful in the Christian life. Don't let the, the poison accrue in your system. Number four, confess to individuals where needed. Uh, now, mo- most of what I've been talking about today has been about confessing to God because that's what the text is doing. But, but Scripture also teaches us to confess to one another right? James says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. And if you aren't prepared to confess your sins to someone uh, you've wronged and you're only uh, prepared to confess it to, to God, 
you might find that you're not really confessing sin at all because you're actually not prepared to face the consequences of what you've done. And that may involve not just confessing it, but making restitutions or reparations to that person where needed. And number five, I would say, make use of set prayers or pre-written prayers if you find them helpful. And it's not a biblical rule here, of course, but, but, but I've used this very psalm. Psalm 51 is a set prayer in helping me um, confess sin in the past. And in a moment, we're going to use another, prayer, uh, another one altogether, which is actually one of my uh, favorite ones, one that I often use in my personal devotional life as a way of confessing sin. I, I, find, I just find it very, very helpful. And I, I, I think you might find set prayers helpful, uh, particularly if this is something that you're, you're not really used to doing. So those are just a few practical things that may, may help you in recovering and applying the grace of confession in your own life. But underneath them lie just two convictions that are both at the very heart of the Christian message. You and I are more sinful than we ever dared to fear. But God is more merciful than you could ever dare to hope. And because he is, we can come to him boldly and confess our sins knowing that we will find mercy in our time of need. And so as we close, um, the words of this prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer are going to appear on the screen. And uh, I invite you to pray this aloud with me as we conclude, just to confess our sins uh, together before we come uh, to the Lord's table this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and against our fellow humans in thought, word, and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. We are truly sorry, and we repent of all our sins. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past, and grant that we may serve you in newness of life, to the glory of your name. Amen. As we said, biblical confession is the collision between two things, knowing the radical depths of your sin and knowing the radical depths of God's mercy. And we, as we come to this table, we recognize that the radical depths of God's mercy is shown to us in the, the Lord Jesus Christ. 